from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. And he goes, well, when I go out and I heard the sheep, he goes, I smell their breath. <laughs> and I have probably more paleoethnobotany friends than anyone else. Um, but you know what? That's book learning. We were supposed to do an authentic, um, true Hopewellian menu. That's something for academia. For people who are going out to eat and enjoy something, you know, that's when we have to, that's when the chefiness comes in, you know? I'm Sarah Fenske. Rob Connolly is chef and owner of the acclaimed Midtown restaurant Bullrush. There he uses food to tell the story of Ozark's cuisine, going back to a time when that was truly something distinctive. It wasn't until railroads were built across the state that it became easy to transport food around, he explains. And so in those years, before 1870, locals relied on the land around them. But Rob Connolly also knows that that Ozarks cuisine is not the cuisine native to Missouri. After all, people lived here long before the Europeans showed up. He's long been interested in what indigenous Missourians ate. And his efforts to explore that story have resulted in an interesting collaboration taking place this weekend. And he joins us now to tell us about it. So Rob Connolly, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. And we're also joined today by Chef Freddy Bitsui. He is a Navajo chef from New Mexico. He was most recently the executive chef of Mitsitam Native Food Cafe inside the Smithsonian National Museum of the American Indian in Washington, D.C. And his new book is New Native Kitchen, Celebrating Modern Recipes of the American Indian. It's available now for pre-order through Amazon. And he joins us today. So Chef Freddy Bitsui, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Thank you. So, Rob, this story for us kind of starts with Bullrush, and you've long been interested in the food of indigenous Missourians, but you felt like this wasn't your story to tell. Why not? Well, you know, there's the idea of cultural appropriation, and I I start there uh, because from that perspective, I have to make sure that the story is being told in a respectful way. And to me, respectful means in an authentic or honest way. So it's easy for me to read books, maybe talk to folks and have my interpretation of the story, but that's still my interpretation. And so it's always been important to me to have uh, original or first person stories to share with um, the public because, you know, my customers want to know. I don't have... Um, the average customer, I would say. I have people who who really want to know more about the history of the area. And uh, so for me, it's important to do it that way. And, and, you know, also just from a positive perspective, think of the diversity of voices that I can bring to the table, uh, literally and metaphorically, when I bring folks from outside in, um, just like we're doing this weekend. So, yeah, tell us how that led to what's going on this weekend. How did you end up connecting with uh, Chef Freddie Bitsui? Well, I, I knew of Chef Freddie from back in my time living in New Mexico, and um, we didn't really interact back then. But um, once I knew that he was at the Smithsonian, 
you know, anyone who's lived in New Mexico, it, it all feels like a very small town no matter where you live. And so we have this small town, hometown pride. And it was really cool to hear that he was the one taking the reins of the culinary world uh, over in D.C. And, and so... Um, you know, I had to bide my time until it, it seemed appropriate. And there's a lot of indigenous chefs out there right now who are doing really cool things, and they're all doing very different things. And and um, I, I guess for me, it felt that what Chef Freddie was doing was the most pertinent to what we're doing here, uh, the most interesting. And it certainly doesn't uh, hurt that he's got this great book coming out that uh, is exciting for me, and I think it'll be exciting for our diners. So, Freddie, you have this book coming out, but what you're going to be doing when you're here in St. Louis this weekend is something a bit different than what you explore in this book. You're going to be exploring the food of the Hopewell uh, tradition. A lot of Missourians may not know that term, even if they're somewhat up on the history of Missouri. What do we mean by the Hopewell culture? The way that I view um, the history of Native peoples is kind of by region, you know. So you have the, the Northeast, the Southeast, the Southwest, and the Pacific Northwest. And then kind of in the middle, um, it's referred to as the Hopewellian culture. So where I'm from in the Southwest, we, the ancient peoples that were here were the who comes the Hoo-Hoo down in Phoenix, the ancient Puebloans who were in New Mexico. And so the, um, the people who identified themselves in like the um, St. Louis area, the Chicago area, we refer them academically as the Hopewellian culture. Hmm. So it would be it would be the people who span pretty much the Great Lakes all the way down to uh, Louisiana. So when we think of the Osage um, here in Missouri, these would have been people who were descended from this Hopewell culture. Yes, because um, you know there's a lot of migratory things that happened at a certain time um, back in historical eras. Like for example, here in New Mexico, um, a lot of the um, ancestral pueblos um, had to find new ways of um, farming. So they moved to the Rio Grande in, in, in you know, modern-day um, Albuquerque. And then some moved west to the Hopi, and some moved south to Zuni. So, it, it, you know, at, the, at the, pretty much at the same time, that's where everyone was kind of relocating where they wanted to live. You know, maybe they had just bad family members that they just wanted to get away from, you know. And uh, so that's how um, people started to move around, you know. And then the Osage moved further south, and while well, well, the Ojibwe, you know, relocated further north. So it's kind of this, um, a great way for everyone to relate to one another, because everyone has that tradition um, from, from ancient society. So what do we know about what the people in this Hopewell grouping, what they would have been eating? Uh, well, we pretty much know from what we view as um, indigenous ingredients, things that just are... Um, from that area, uh, things that just grew there and that continue, you know, continue to grow because that's what the, the, the term indigenous means. It means um, products that come from a spe- specific area in, in, in the world. So that's pretty much... Um, <laughs> I, w- I always have this great story. Um, there's a Navajo weaver who, uh, who, who raises and who is reintroducing um, this churro sheep and I always ask him, how do you find the wild ingredients where you live in, in the Four Corners? And he goes, well, when I go out and I herd the sheep, he goes, I smell their breath. <laughs> and it, it's, it's really funny. To me, I, I thought, okay. And he, he goes, I go, you know, because there's just great wild onion in, 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 in the Four Corners. So when he smells that onion, 
he knows that, you know, he's going to go back to where the sheep were and he's going to pick him. So, you know, so when tribes, um, tribes, their idea of finding indigenous ingredients to eat were uh, knowing where the animals ate, where they found berries, where they found roots, where they found certain vegetation, um, you know, fauna throughout the area. So, you know, that's um, how we identify what indigeneity is. And I think that's one of the great words of what's, you know, in, in this new society. So, so Rob and I are really coming together to introduce what the Hopewellians use. You know, that's, I think that's what's really important because um, I always joke about the uh, menus that I write because if I wrote a true ancient menu, it would just be a disaster because the flavors that we are so accustomed to today um, with acids, like with, you know, like vinegars or anything, you know, dealing with acid tomatoes, you know, mm-hmm. were something that were not around and everything, you know, had a different flavor. So that's what I really do feel that I introduce things. So like, for example, um, we're going to use some goose foot and uh, it's very bitter. So we're going to use something less bitter um, to introduce that with, with dandelion. And then we're going to use prickly pear. Now, you know, people always uh, revert to thinking of that prickly pear since it's a cactus. It's from the um, um, Southwest only. But as far as I understand and from what I've studied, you know, I have to put that in there that, and, and, and all the classes I've taken with prickly pear, every single state has a version of prickly pear. Now, they may not be, um, you know, one of the most sought-after ingredients, but uh, prickly pear has, you know, it's even available in Italy. You know, there's, it's indigenous to Europe. So it's, it's an ingredient that's always been around. And, um, for example, um, in Arizona, there's these weird laws about cacti, like, with cactus, you just can't go out and harvest cactus. It's, it's kind of illegal. And there's a, a, a black market about cactus. So people try to smuggle cactus out of Arizona. So just being a part of that, um, growing up, knowing that we, you, know, you can't touch the cactus or you can't destroy it, um, it gave me, as, as someone who was raised in Arizona, even though it's an indigenous product that we can eat and, and enjoy, it was always something that we couldn't touch. So... Mm-hmm. It's a lot of that colonialism idea, you know, that's brought upon um, Native people where we're even told we can't eat something that's indigenous. So the reason why, you know, I, I, I use the uh, prickly bear vinaigrette in this particular goosefoot salad is, you know, we have to understand that um, it's just kind of a reintroduction of these ingredients and have people appreciate them a little more, you know, knowing that even though there's fruit, wild fruits that grow everywhere, that they're edible, and people will never go hungry if they understand about these ingredients. You know what I mean? And, and you had mentioned this idea that if you were doing sort of a, a slavish imitation of what people were doing so many years ago, that this would taste off to people. So this isn't meant to be something that is 100%. This is a meal they would have had during this period. You're kind of filtering this through your own palate and your own techniques. Is that right? Yes, and it's, it's, it's trial by error. You know, and I, there's a joke that I always make. There's, you know, I always use two people. Um, there's always an Italian grandmother who makes a better lasagna than someone. And there's always a Native American grandmother who makes fry bread better, better than another grandmother, you know. So it's really difficult. And these are things that I have experienced at the museum where I would get people from other tribes because the, 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 the museum cafe, you know, is supposed to represent every single indigenous group in the Western Hemisphere. So it's almost impossible to 
live up to that standard because, you know, cooks are different, chefs are different. Um, the way that I was brought into the native food, um, you know, movement is the understanding that the ingredients are there and, you know, the chefs are different, the cooks are different, but the ingredients and the uh, awareness will always be there. So if people want to learn more and go deeper, that's what they would love to do. But again, we always have to understand that it's it's a dinner, it's food. It's, you know, we have to sit around the table and enjoy the food and enjoy our time together. Mm-hmm. If we were supposed to do a authentic, um, true Hopewellian menu, that's something for academia. It's something that um, is just used for, for people who are really interested in it. But if, for people who are going out to eat and enjoy something, you know, that's when we have to, that's when the chefiness comes in, you know. And Rob, so there's actually two meals that are coming out of this collaboration uh, between Bullrush and Chef Freddie. The first is one that that Freddie is cooking at Bullrush, and that's going to be all Freddie's cooking. Is that right? Uh, my team will support him, but yes, it's his menu and uh, his concepts and and recipes. And then there's a second meal. Tell us what's going on with this. So on Sunday, then we're taking the same concept. Um, I want. Chef Freddie to give me his menu first so I could draw from that. And then we're doing a, a more Midwest brunch. And so uh, we're, we're not doing the ancient Hopewellian tradition of biscuits and gravy, uh, but we are going to be doing a biscuits and gravy using the Hopewellian ingredients. So we're going to have venison and we'll also have uh, lamb's quarter seeds, which that's the goose foot. Um, and that's more the, the bull rush style of making sure we're tapping into the Midwest bellies. Uh, we, we like our big portions here and and keeping it contemporary, but never drawing so far away from the, the history and the research that it doesn't look familiar anymore. And so this meal, um, this one on Sunday, this is going to, going to be almost um, Hopewellian food filtered through the Ozark bull rush lens? Yeah, it, it's the same way that Chef Freddie's doing the dinner where he's giving a Southwest spin to it. And, you know, his more he, he's got a much more expansive perspective than I do because of his academic research. And then, of course, as he just said, the work he does at the Smithsonian. And and so here um, I have a, a, a little tighter lens to look through. And my lens is early 19th, late 18th century Ozark cuisine, uh, where we've always said we look to the indigenous people, which are primarily the Osage and also some of the Cherokee, uh, the European settlers and the enslaved that the settlers often would bring. And so we take those three cultures and um, use them as the inspiration for the food that we create. And so, Freddie, this dinner that you're doing on Saturday, um, even though you're exploring the Hopewellian culture, you're also bringing your own culture in as part of this. There's going to be a little bit of of a Navajo spin or some Navajo ingredients um, in that? Yes. um, I'm a firm believer in if it's a menu from me, it, it comes from my feelings and it comes from where I cook and so it just wouldn't be natural if I didn't put a part of myself in this particular menu. So um, as, as the way that the way that I was brought up and the way that I relate to all my other native chefs and, and, and friends and groups, we always give things to one another. Like we, we, we will present something to appreciate something. So my appreciation for the whole event is, you know, the, the first course, which would be the corn trio. And I'm going to bring some um, Navajo-style roasted corn, and we're going to make a corn broth. We're going to make a corn cake. 
and um, it's, it's going to be presented in, in that factor. But it's not going to take away from the, you know, the idea of the event. Um, all, all it's going to do is say, you know, this is a part of me, and this is what 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 I'm bringing in. I'm sharing as your menu planner and chef for that for that night. Hmm. And I think it, it will bring in a, a, an extra special um, um, motif to the menu. And I think it kind of is a great starter because um, even though people tend to um, tend to generally think that uh, corn has always been a part of Native America. When we look at the timeline of corn, corn was actually very new to the area, and, and it was you know, uh, corn was invented in, in Central um, America, and, and then it moved north, southwest, and then as it moved east, you know, it it, it, it it's a, been a newer product. So when we when we think about the Hopewellian culture, corn is a very new product, you know, when, when we think about the time, and and then as it expanded north, it, it probably was. About a good four, three hundred years new by the time the Europeans arrived in the um, in the Northeast. Rob, hearing Chef Freddie talk about the history of corn, it just is, is taking me back to conversations I've had with you where you're exploring how long a plant has been in an area and how it came here and the foraging that you do. As you two are sort of exploring this menu together and, and putting this event together, have you just been geeking out about <laughs> plants and, and animals? Yeah, and of course it raises more questions than I, I have time to answer. Um, I mean, that, that's the blessing and the curse of this whole bull rush project is there's so much information and from so many sources. And, and I'll give you a quick good example. Um, I've talked before on the show that I rely a lot on paleoethnobotanists. And I have probably more paleoethnobotany friends than anyone else. Um, but you know what? That's book learning. And that's very different than um, what we're doing here. It's not that what we're doing here isn't very much grounded in academia and, and, and book knowledge, but it's also in tradition and history and families. And, um, you know, for me then, yes, I am geeking out over the things he shares. He, every time Chef Freddie talks, it, it takes me down another road of something I need to research, and I don't have time to even research the stuff that's <laughs> on my list. cooking. I mean, come on here. <laughs> and we're, we're really hoping that we can document all the dishes and the stories behind them and get them up on social media for Bull Rush or, or my page, Chef Rob Connolly. Um, and, and Chef Freddie may do the same because I, there, there's not enough seats in the house to get the word out to the number of people I think will be interested in this. So this is both a, a, a series of good meals, and it's also really, there's a lot we can all learn from this just from being spectators. Yes, absolutely. Well, Chef Rob Connolly, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, my pleasure. And Rob, again, is the chef and owner of Bull Rush, and also uh, Chef Freddie Bitsui. I want to thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much. I had a great time. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. 
St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.